Hello and welcome to the Back in Business podcast. We're into the summer season. I'm Liz Barkley, business journalist and Back in Business podcaster. And my fellow podcasters this week are Russ Haworth, who is a family business consultant in Taunton and Somerset and runs the Family Business Partnership, and Tom Warner, who is co-founder of the family gin company Warner's Distillery, making farm-grown gin in Harrington and Northampton. And therefore, of course, my very favourite person to have met this week. (laughs) (laughs) Tom, I know you said earlier you'd got lots of gin there. I haven't got any. It may be a bit early in the morning as we're recording at half past nine, but um, I've got your address. Uh, And we're all going to be talking to John Stevenson, MP for Carlisle, who's chair of the all-party parliamentary group on family businesses and also the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on food and drink. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Slightly different format over the summer. The business owners get to talk to the MP. Uh, We'll try and talk about family businesses first and then move into food and drink. They'll overlap a bit. But all I want to do is just try to make sure we don't wander too far off the subject. Now, it's just worth saying that an all-party parliamentary group is there to gather information. It's not a policy-making body, but it can help to make recommendations on policy. So let's turn to family businesses first. Two-thirds of the UK businesses are family-owned. That's a large number of businesses when you consider there's almost 5 million businesses in the UK. They generate over a quarter of the UK GDP. And in 2016, they paid an estimated 149 billion in tax. And that's about a fifth of government revenues. They employ around about 12 million people. John Stevenson, this is a hugely important sector. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's vital to the British economy. Uh, and it's not just the national economy that it matters to, it's local economies. And as a constituency MP, I engage an awful lot with local businesses and hear from them the issues that arise in their different sectors. Um, I think the one weakness for the family businesses is that they cover the whole ambit of the economy. They're not one sector. So coming together, they have sometimes uh, competing interests and different interests, but sometimes there is a common theme that runs through them. But I think we often underestimate just how important the family businesses are to our national economy. And as we come out of this uh, recession that we are presently in and the difficulties that we're experiencing, I think family businesses are going to be absolutely critical to that recovery. So we need to nurture them then. And Ross Haworth, your business provides advice and support to families to help them to negotiate and navigate the complexities that can come out of being a business and a family. Um, What are the challenges that you're seeing? Um, Well, on top of the sort of general business challenges, because the the family businesses have still got businesses to run, there's also the, the family dynamic, which is what kind of makes family businesses collectively unique as well, is that they have this family dynamic that they're, um, having to manage alongside running a business. And I think J- John's made a very good point there that they span many different sectors 
And so they will face very different challenges um, amongst those sectors. So some businesses we've seen have been um, inundated. If they're manufacturing PPE, for example, they've been inundated with orders at the moment compared to perhaps somebody in the hospitality industry who um, will be facing very uncertain times. So on top of the business challenges that they're facing as well, they're then looking at whether they bring in the next generation to um, start taking on a role within the business. They're looking at their own um, succession planning. Um, I think one thing that the uh, sort of COVID crisis has perhaps brought into um, stark focus is all of our own mortality. It's a, a crisis that has made us look at uh, our health um, perhaps more so than previous um, recessions. And that is having an impact on the discussions around succession because most business owners will um, assume they're immortal. Um, and this type of crisis is bringing that um, in, into focus. So there's all sorts of different challenges for them to um, try and navigate on top of running a business. Tom Warner, you're a family business on a family farm. I, do, I imagine you're one of those people who Ross thinks thinks you're immortal. <laughs> But uh, that's uh, that's hardly the case, is it? Uh, from a family business point of view, what's your what are you finding? It, it, it's true. I think it, particularly with succession, we're on a farm. So I I left the farm and went into the produce industry for a decade. Came back. So I'm operating within my dad's farm, who is uh, in his autumn years. Although he still thinks he's 21 and and will call people a lot younger than him, silly old buggers, if they get in his way, but he, he thinks he's going to live forever. And as Russ said, that, that's a problem because it, you need to plan because I've got a, a limited company that's operating. He is my landlord. We're still trying to time down on the rental agreement and lease for, for the buildings that we're doing. So there's, there's nuanced things like that, that when it's, when it's all solely owned by us as a family, it's kind of okay, but it can get complicated because there are siblings and, you know, everybody's got their aspirations in life and everybody has different hopes and dreams. So you can be aligned one minute and not aligned the, the next. Um, so I think there is a lot of hard conversations that have to be had in family businesses. And more often than not, it depends on the power structure within that and how dominant, if you've got quite, my dad's quite explosive. Um, so those, those conversations can be difficult and all he's ever known is agriculture. So, um, you know, I'd say he's a clever guy, but also his, his horizon line is different to people that have experienced other things. So getting him to the table and to, to, to sort of agree to things, especially when he keeps saying he's going to live forever. Um, you know, they can be, uh, they can be difficult conversations to have. And I think, you know, mediation for family businesses or, or someone that can help guide those conversations in a non-explosive way, because we all know we can behave, um, probably the worst to some of the people that we love uh, on occasion. So I think it, it, it can lead to, whereas in a business discussion, you can keep things quite moderated and, and uh, unemotional. Whereas in, in a family situation, those simple conversations that, that wouldn't be explosive in a normal boardroom can actually grow legs and become big divisions within a family and, 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 uh, and cause warfare. So 
Um, I think yeah, it is a particular problem with family businesses, the emotional part of what's going on. And the fact that they tend to be smaller, they tend to be, throw, you know, they're entrepreneurs, uh, even if it's a succession of entrepreneurs, they will work longer hours, they will put more heart and soul into it, their name might be above the door, so it means that much more, so that the emotion level of what's going on, or the fact that granddad started the business, there's that historic emotion to what's going on, I think it, it can lead to... Um, poor decision making because of a, a, a emotional connection uh, and it can lead to um, massive problems in succession planning um, and uh, I mean I've not got a silver bullet on how to solve that but I think um, if there was maybe some form of I mean Russ you know more of Russ around the country because Russ can't do the uh, however many family businesses we've just <laughs> mentioned there are but there are a lot um, and, and each one will have a nuanced uh, uh, problem that's going on inside it because of the nature of the beast. Yeah, I um, completely agree. I think that the emotional um, aspect is one of the most um, sort of underestimated aspects when um, sort of advice is given or, or professional advice is given to family firms because a lot of professions are grounded in technical and logical advice. And when logic and emotion collide, um, it it can have some unexpected um, results so that, that's in essence why I do what I do um, and I think that's the challenge that is going to be faced by a lot of family businesses over the coming years is how do you successfully pass on a business assuming that you want to successfully pass on a business there is this measure for family business for success is your ability to pass it from one generation to the the next whereas what I've seen in, in my work is that can have a negative impact on the next generation who actually want to go and do their own thing but feel very pressured into taking on the business um, and having that discussion around what are all of our individual purposes and how do we best fulfil those either within or utilising the family business is an important discussion to be had. John, is that the kind of discussion that you've been having? Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, particularly Tom's point, because I think he actually raises the strengths and the weaknesses of family businesses, because they're almost the same thing. Because, yes, you highlight the, the dynamics in the family that can be emotional, mm. difficult, um, and troublesome at times. But by the same token, the family business is more resilient, as you rightly point out, will often put more effort in because it is about the family. They're invariably very loyal to their staff. Um, I think, interestingly enough, in the present economic climate, family businesses are often more capable of dealing with a downturn than more traditional businesses. And they take a longer a longer term view on things as well. They accept that there's a bit of a short term hit, but in the long run, they see that they can sort of still grow the business. They still want to keep the staff on. They still want to work hard and succeed. And so I, you were getting that sort of dichotomy of this, the strength and the weakness as being almost one and the same thing. But succession has always been one of the greatest challenges, I think, for family businesses. And it's one that I think everybody always comes back to. But I, th I also sometimes think we get a little bit caught up in that. Um, I'm actually a solicitor uh, by profession of a firm that is over 200 years ago, uh, oh, 200 years old. It had three generations of family, and now it's non-family. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, because in many respects, that family has created a very successful business, which has then been passed on to others. So I think sometimes when families have this 
big worry or granddad or dad set up the business, should I bail out or should I sell out or should I get partners in? I think that's sort of the wrong debate. What it should be about is what will actually make this business better? How will it improve? Can we grow it? Can we employ more people? Sometimes that will be within the family, but sometimes that will uh, involve outsiders coming in, taking a stake, or it may ultimately be selling, selling the business. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because inevitably there will be another family member at some, some part of the country creating a new business and the whole thing will start again. And personally, I think that's very healthy. What about, uh, can I just ask you uh, about governance? Do mm. family businesses have governance? And just to come back to that point that John has just made, um, if somebody comes in from outside, that can't be a bad thing, can it? Because otherwise you've just got family thinking, you haven't got any diversity around the table. Um, yeah, so on, on the point on governance, I think it's uh, important to separate family governance from business governance. So business governance is obviously what um, governs the processes within the business. So you've got the corporate um, governance. If you're large enough, you're subject to the weights principles. If not, then that's possibly a good place to start looking at, at corporate governance anyway. But, but where there's perhaps... Um, <clears throat> the opportunity to enhance things is within the family governance structure. So how do you create and manage the boundaries between the family and the business? And we hear a lot about conversations around the kitchen table that are making decisions um, on uh, the business matter. If you've then got somebody from outside of the business who's not sat around that kitchen table, then they potentially are being excluded from the decision-making process. And, and one example I had was a family firm with a husband and wife team who were redecorating the office premises. And they kind of got three options together, got all the staff together and said, which option do you want? They chose option A, for example. Husband and wife then went home and said, we don't really like option A, should we go for option B? They chose option B and went back in the next day and said, we've changed our mind. And it's a very little thing, but it does have an impact on those people who are from outside of the family within the business. If they don't feel as if they're included, having governance structures that means the right discussions are happening in the right place at the right time with the right people involved will help avoid some of those um, situations. Um, but I think the, it, particularly in the UK at the moment, there is a a big appetite for the introduction of family governance um, to help manage that family dynamic. I, th I think Russ, uh, Russ makes a very valid point there, but I also think you've got to look at the size of the family business, because obviously if you've got a Mars, which is a family business but an enormous one, they yes. effectively are the shareholders but they take a very uh, sort of arm's length approach to the running of the business. They might have set mm. out this sort of ethos but in the day-to-day -day management they take a very sort of distant role. Then you've got the small family business where there might just be you know the family and four or five staff and I think that the dynamics are different, the governance is different. I think the real challenge is when you've got a family business that is growing and it's getting to that point where it does actually need external advice and that's where people like Russ I think come in and have a very important role to play because you're then taking them that transition to being a bigger organization and therefore needing different governance structures and I think that's the challenge that sort of gray area in the middle that is the yeah. real difficulty. And there's a horrible phrase there which um, is, is used very often to describe that phase in a, in a family business's life cycle is the professionalization of the business. 
And it does, that's not to suggest that before then they were unprofessional, but it's bringing in external um, knowledge, external management teams as part of the growth of the business because, frankly, if the business is growing, there might not be enough family members to take up the roles anyway. So it may be that the need to grow is um, driven through um, uh, all good reasons that, that the business is doing really well. But that can create some challenges because somebody coming in from a corporate um, organization into a family business that the the values might be different so whereas you know general corporate businesses are based on um, driving profits and growth and turnover family firms tend to have that longer term view where actually if it's the right thing to do let's do that rather than let's just go for for profit and that can be a cultural difference that um, some people from outside a family business struggle with I think it, 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 it depends. You're right. So it's the infinite game versus, you know, the finite game, isn't it, in terms of the way that you're thinking? And I think family businesses do think of the infinite game more than any sort of PLC would because they're not delivering to shareholders that financial year to, to drive a return. So the decisions, as you, as we've said, with um, coping with COVID, um, family businesses will probably take a much different view to this year than a PLC would that's got a deliver a, a dividend so I think they will make better um, decisions and in terms of the growth and the, the professionalization you're dead right the best thing we did was we actually used our um, local enterprise partnership we got involved with the manufacturing advisory service we got a growth coach that was that was government funded you know partially government funded and that was this the first step of us professionalizing what we did as a business because it, it was, we did about six sessions, they were every two weeks for a while. Our growth coach is now our board, he's our chairman, he was an ex-Allied Demec employee, he's the chairman of our, he's a non-exec chair. Um, but he took us off the coalface uh, and enabled us to look up and just do a five-year roadmap of where we were going as a business. And I think, you know, we, we were screamingly painful with our growth. You know, the last two years on the fast track, we've been the fastest growing drinks brand in the UK. And if we hadn't professionalized, we would have exploded. And I think it, it, it's, it's getting businesses to do that and family business, it's critical because part of our success was because we professionalized. You know, we, we had that kernel of brilliance within what we were doing and the products that we were making, but had we not had that just point, you know, touch of the tiller to poke that raw energy in the right direction, you know, it, it could have been an absolute car crash. So. Can I ask you, Tom, because that's yeah. a really interesting point you make, because I actually think an awful lot of family businesses don't do what you have done. Yeah. And therefore, they keep their growth down in a way that a, a corporate wouldn't. A corporate would go for that growth, go for that expansion, etc., and go for the profit. Well, some family businesses just sort of get to a certain size and then just sort of stay at that size. Well, you clearly made that leap forward. Can I just ask you, what was your, what was the initiative or what... The, the trigger that made you do that sort of professionalization well my mantra since starting the business is we want to save the world from mediocre gin so we've always had a global sort of <laughs> I love it. sort of perspective on operations <laughs> and we've done it on a shoestring but I, I think the catalyst really was you know we we put in um plans that this wasn't going to be a cottage industry we wanted it to be more than that we wanted to supply national retailers we wanted to supply internationally so we had that viewpoint and i i think what getting involved with our growth coach chris did is he actually developed the stepping stones 
And once you start to map that out and say, okay, yeah, if, if we follow this roadmap and we put in, these, these are the volume targets, these are the, the, the production capabilities we'll require, this is the staff. And I think some family businesses have never done what they're doing before. A lot of them are entrepreneurs and they'll start something and they don't actually, I mean, we had no experience in manufacturing gin or, or, or the drinks industry. I was farmer and, and fruit and veg. So I think you, you start with an ambition, but you do need, you do need, I suppose, you need to break that group think and you need experience from outside to come in. And often when you're starting a business, you can't afford to bring an experienced operator in. And, and most of the team we hired initially don't work for us anymore. You know, we've, we've sort of, you get what you can afford at the start. And as the business grows, we've, we've sort of upskilled the, the team that's around us and there's been natural attrition as well. But um, you need, you need um, other voices to bounce off, which give you, the ability to to look above the parapet and look at the horizon and plan for that. And I think a lot of family businesses don't ever get that additional voice in that enables them to see what's possible. Um, and I think, you know, we, we, we're we coming into Brexit, SMEs are gonna drive the future economy because they'll be the firms of the future. How do we bring that think um, into more small businesses? And, and that will be through, I mean, a body that's fantastic and it's just over the water in Ireland is board beer um, and what they do with food businesses in Ireland it just makes us look silly on, on a global scale you know they've it's 12% of their GDP so they have a much 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 higher care factor for the food and drink and, and agriculture um, but they they um, have internationally trained advisors so we've got dit our dit guys are uh, you know our masters of you know they're jacks of all trade and master of none so there's there's no real focus um they'll do focus delegations but you're still using the same people that are trying to sell cars as to sell food and i think we if we really want to drive food and drink which is such a huge sector for the uk we need specialists in those areas um you know in ireland they have they have a master's program where um, the, the students on those courses actually get put into companies to build their businesses in overseas markets as part of their course. It's little things like that which help to make, you know, help Ireland punch well above its weight on, uh, on food export pro rata to its, to its GDP. Um, just it, which, it, sorry, it, sorry, we just seem to be moving on to the food and drink uh, issue. And what I was just about to say, John, was it's the biggest manufacturing sector in the UK, larger than automi uh, automotive and aerospace combined. I mean, that is yeah. that is vast. It employs uh, more than 430,000 people in the UK, has a turnover of more than 105 billion, and 96% of the UK's 7,400 food and drink manufacturing businesses are SMEs. Again, you're chair, John, of the all-party parliamentary group on food and drink. Another, absolutely, um, vital sector. Uh, what do you think of the points that Tom's just made? Well, it's, it's very interesting because a large number of family-run businesses are quite often f related to the food and drink sector. And it's really interesting, mm. Tom, you're exactly that. So it was quite interesting when you were participating in this discussion, because you, you, you cross both sides of the, that sort of divide. I mean, food and drinks manufacturing for me has been, a, in many respects, a frustration because it is such a huge part of our economy. It's in every part of our country. I mean, I always say to MPs, you will invariably have 
some sort of food and drink manufacturer of some size in your constituency. And if you take mine, I have um, two sisters who have employed 1,200 people. I've got McVitie's who employ 800. I've got Nestle that employ 400. Huge, uh, hugely important to the local economy, let alone the national economy. And also they're very innovative and they export a, a substantial amount of uh, their, pro their product. So, I mean, hugely significant and important to our economy. And generally speaking, they are uh, recession proof or recession resilient at least. Um, but I'm very interested in your comments about Ireland. I mean, it's a much larger part of their economy, but I do agree with you. I think they are the link into the specialization and the help that they give to that sector is something that I think we should be trying to replicate because those SMEs are often the fastest growing businesses and the ones that will create the most employment, will develop the new products, and hopefully will go on to be major exporters. I think the one weakness that that, that has, and it's a similar problem for the family sector, is when you approach government, it's very easy for government to say, we want to speak to the pharmaceutical industry, or we want to speak mm. to the um, motor manufacturing sector, because actually they're only speaking to a few people. But if you say, I want to speak to the family business sector, or I want to speak to the food and drink sector, it's actually very, very difficult. And you don't just want to hear the voice of Nestle or Mars, who are huge, you want to actually hear the mm. voice of the SMEs who are probably closer to the ground and probably in the long run are going to be more beneficial to the economy. 100%. You know, it's because it's, food <laughs> is one of those that any, anybody can go and start making jam. Um, and, that, and I think that's the beauty of food. You can do it in a small scale yeah. um, and you can build up these businesses. You know, a lot of these businesses that are big names now come from quite small beginnings. Um, and I think they, food and drink is the heartbeat of, because it's, it's, um, it's a very authentic industry, it tends to be done that the smaller guys will use the highest quality ingredients and the best process to make the finest product. So it's artisanal, it's handmade, um, and it's the sexier part of the food industry. As soon as you get up to the bigger companies, it's about value engineering and, and sort of making the product in the most efficient and cost-effective way possible. Um, so SMEs produce these high quality products that, that excite and create demand because people know that when, if they buy mass produced stuff, invariably it's not as good as the, as the, as the craft stuff. Um, it's enabling these SMEs to, to scale those operations, um, to cope with demand, to, to look further afield than, their, than their, their local town because more often than not, they create products that then go on to change the industry. Like our rhubarb gin, it was the first rhubarb gin in the world, first pink gin at scale in the UK. Pink gin, everybody drinks pink gin now. It frustrates me because pink is a colour, not a flavour. Um, but there are products that are now called pink gin. Gordon's Premium, Gordon's launched a product because of our rhubarb gin. They even name-checked me in a talk. I was sat in the, the audience and the guy was like, yeah, Warner's Gin, we're launching uh, something similar to your rhubarb. The most successful product launch Diageo have had in decades. Um, and that was inspired by what was going on at the SME level of the, of the country. So SMEs can not only create jobs at a local level and then create products that become fast growing and, and, and sell nationally, but they can also influence what the big guys are doing. It's sort of a hothouse for MPD that, that, that deliver trends for the big guys to then go and sell British products all around the world. The other interesting thing about the food and drink sector is actually the brands. Mm. 
because the brands can be very, very strong in that sector. Very much so. And can be quite enduring, it can be very enduring as well. But, and, and building a brand takes, uh, you know, a huge amount of time and investment to get it to from product to, yeah. to brand in the consumer's eye. I know we can talk about this all day. I've got this feeling that we could be here, still here at lunchtime and it's only 10 o'clock. Uh, but, uh, John, you've got Tom here and you've got Russ here. Any burning questions in your head as chair of your two APPGs, Family Business and Food and Drink, that you want to put to them and then I want to give them a chance to give you their ideas on what would really make small businesses and their sectors thrive post-COVID. Yeah, I, I think the frustration for MPs like myself who are very supportive of the family business sector and the food and drink sector is that they seem to go below the radar to a very large extent. And I think their prominence and importance should be um, a, a much higher level within government, in the media, just more widely recognised their significance and importance. So my question to both of you really is, how can you and how can people like myself improve that? And how can we get government to be far more aware and in tune with the needs of the family business and the food and drink sector? Um, I think it's education, 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 isn't it? Let them know how important it is. Uh, I, I don't know how you drill that into them in terms of the, the scale of what family businesses are in the UK and the scale of the food business and, and how important family businesses are to the food industry within the UK. Because I think once they realised quite how important it was, um, they would pay more attention to it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I also think that the, there needs to be um, consideration on, we've obviously had a massive change in the way we live our lives forced upon us, which as, um, or has rather uh, advanced um, progression towards perhaps remote working or working from home, from something that was maybe a five-year timeline to we had to do it on, on a Monday. You know, it was a very, very quick change. But whereas that would have been resisted before, because it's forced on us, it's become more accepted that this is perhaps a way to work. And we were talking off-air about the shift away from sort of traditional hubs and centres to, to more rural areas, which is where uh, there are obviously a huge number of family businesses as well. And it's ensuring that they have the right level of support and infrastructure to be able to thrive in what we could term the new normal, rather than perhaps what's traditionally been seen. So p particularly down here in the West Country, there's um, connectivity and infrastructure issues. We've got the M5, which is great, um, but we can't all get on the M5 and there's um, fewer of us wanting to um, now. Um, broadband and um, that kind of support in rural areas um, needs to be improved in order to help businesses. I mean, we're all talking on Zoom now, and that is something that if we had very poor broadband connections, we wouldn't be able to do. So there are restrictions that we need to overcome um, in order to sort of embrace this opportunity that we've got. Um, plus, we've got the backdrop of Brexit coming as well, the more that we can do to help support and help businesses thrive in, in what's um, new normal now and what's going to be um, post-January will, will be um, very important. 
I think that's a really great point because everything's in the wrong place at the moment. Um, so if you if we think about central London, office blocks, Pret-a-Manger, all these brands that have got all of it, it's it's all in the wrong place because people are going to be at home. So there is going to be a huge yeah. wave now of, and probably in the food sector because that's the sector where all the sandwich shops and delis are in the wrong spot. So where people used to buy their lunch, the M&S Simply Foods in central London, etc. All of these guys need to change their estates. And I think there's going to be a wave of entrepreneurial expansion into the service sector for people working at home, office supplies at home, you know, food and drink at home, uh, uh, tech support equipment at home, etc. So that will be driven by startup businesses, small businesses and family businesses in the future. So it's going to be a hugely important as the economy restructures and depending on what ends up happening with the furlough scheme, whether it does stop October or whether there's a bleed out further on. If we look at what France and Germany are doing, they seem to be supporting for a lot longer, which I think we should be doing, if I'm honest. Um, but the economy also needs to restructure. So there's a realization that there's going to be some big material changes as to where things are in the country because we're not going to go back to working in, in office blocks nine to five. It's going to be a, an output measured economy. So people getting their jobs done at home, probably not working, as I just said, nine to five. They might, you know, span their day, but it's about getting it done and fitting around that and how their fitness, how their nutrition and how their lifestyle is going to be underpinned by now working in a, in a house. So we'll probably see a lot of short term property movement as people rebase themselves because they don't need to be within a commuter distance as a, of, a, of an office block. And then also all the services that are going to be required around that. Um, no one's going to be able to plan what that's actually going to look like. But I think as much support to entrepreneurs and SMEs and family businesses as possible, over the coming years because they're the guys that are going to really they're going to be the ants that restructure the fabric of uh, of the economy i like that expression the ants that restructure the fabric of the economy i honestly would never have called you an ant tom well. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um just final thoughts ross mm. what if you well, you are. You're talking via John to the Prime Minister. <laughs> what do you want to say? Um, I think in terms of, and, and this is almost an impossible request because life is so uncertain, but g given how much uncertainty there is at the moment, not just by the current um, COVID crisis that we're, we're navigating at the moment, but in terms of the um, changing um, environment post-Brexit, Having a degree of certainty and clarity allows businesses to plan and allows them to make decisions based on what is going to happen, not on what might happen. And I know that that's an impossible request because we don't know what's around the corner. We didn't see things like COVID coming along. But having some form of certainty and, and the support available to allow businesses to make informed and um, uh, proactive decisions I think would be um, a, a real positive. And I think, um, as you say, that is a bit of an impossible task. But John, can you relay back to the powers that be um, that small businesses would love as much certainty as possible? And I think that comes from being part of the discussion. And also uh, the ants <laughs> would like as much support as possible. And that may come in the form of mentoring as well. 
Um, yeah. And so, John, anything you can do to help, we'd love to <laughs> help you to help us. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. And I mean, I think Ross hit the nail on the head there. Certainty, and I would say stability as well. And I suppose no surprises yeah. from government. Uh -huh. Is, yeah. can be very important for business because businesses are great at adapting and, and you know, getting on with their, their business and what they are good at. But what they don't like is instability, uncertainty and surprises. So I, I, I convey that back to government at all times that you know, they've got to make sure that their policy decision making is uh, sensible, proportionate, realistic. And I think two, two are the key areas that they really, really... Food standards and the environment because we need to be producing really high quality products because that's what builds brands and brands of the future need to have the environment at the core of everything that they're doing. So we cannot sacrifice any of that. Uh, and I know that we've said that nothing's going to happen, but all the MPs voted, didn't vote on supporting the, um, that food bill uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, so we're wide open for uh, America coming in with an aggressive trade deal and, and reducing our food standards and that would devastate the SME small producer because if we don't value food as much, if food becomes much, much, much cheaper uh, from due to welfare and, and other reasons, um, the SME that's trying to produce a really high quality product will be facing an even uh, a steeper uphill battle going against the, the big guys. Um, I think there is a segue into another conversation. <laughs> I think we'll set that one up, uh, Tom, and uh, maybe you'll join us again, uh, John. That would be terrific. Just to say that we set up Back in Business precisely so that you could get to talk to people like Tom and Russ, uh, the small businesses, that point that you made earlier. And so if there's ever anybody that you'd like to talk to that's working in the small business sector, Come to us and we'll do our very, very best to get hold of the right person for you. Um, we're all in this together, so let's hope we come out of COVID and thrive. Uh, John Stevenson, MP, Ross Haworth and Tom Warner from Warner's Distillery. Thank you all very, very much indeed. Mm -hmm.